The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, expressed in markets, extreme stress. If you look at certain credit gauges, if you look at uh, certainly the sell-off that is deepening, and, but really the place where you're seeing stress or, or perhaps the sort of rush of cash is in the treasury market where you're seeing the biggest one-day drop in 30-year yields since 2009 at least. And you're seeing uh, just in general, everyone reprice rates closer and closer to zero. Yelena Shulyetyeva of Bloomberg Economics here with us. And, and Yelena, I just want to get your response to what Larry Kudlow said. And he was talking about how strong the economy was heading into this and that it will be resilient and can recover quickly. Do you agree? Well, we agree with him that it will be temporary in a sense that uh, with the current policy response, the slowdown will soon transition into a contraction and therefore the slowdown part will indeed prove uh, temporary. But uh, back to your question, is uh, the economy strong enough uh, going into that? I would say that the latest payrolls report uh, did show that the economy had some strengths and this is the key premise for us to think that we will not dip into a recession, so at least our base case scenario. But the numbers today did not, uh, you know, they were not as strong as uh, it was looking at the first glance. So first of all, it, the number was inflated by the construction sector uh, hiring, which was uh, mainly due to weather, which was very warm during this winter. So if you uh, see this reversing in the spring, this will exacerbate the slowdown that will cause the services sector to slow down as well. So I would say, yes, the economy is relatively strong, but the response should be quick and not targeted. It should be a massive response if we want to avoid the recession. Lisa, we're also very fortunate today to have in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Mike Collins joining us. Mike is a senior investment officer and senior portfolio manager for PGM Fixed Income. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. You guys have, I'm going to call it a gajillion and one dollars under management. You see the markets on a global scale. What are you seeing today and over the past couple of weeks? Yeah, well, you're finally starting to see uh, the capitulation phase, right? Okay. Up until just a couple days ago, as we're talking to our high yield traders and portfolio managers and all of our different credit sectors. And we said, listen, what can you buy cheap? And they said, there's no real force selling yet. There aren't that many opportunities as much as you would think, given the widening we've seen in credit spreads. But... I think that's changing a little bit on the margin here. And we're actually uh, in the mode of looking for opportunities to add risk here, right? Uh, to Elena's point, I mean, I think there are, are a few um, big considerations. One, the momentum we had in the economy was really solid. And every data point we get kind of reveals the, the strength going into this. Two, uh, there's already been a lot of monetary stimulus, and there will be more. Uh, interest rates uh, for corporates are much lower. Uh, leverage loan 
issuers and borrowers see their funding costs automatically go down, right? Because their yields are based off LIBOR. So they go down instantaneously, right, to reduce their interest expense. Three, there will be a huge uh, coordinated global policy response above and beyond what we're seeing from uh, central banks. Uh, and four, these things tend to be seasonal. This isn't like 08 where you never saw the end game, where people were worried that maybe this is a 1930s Great Depression and it lasts 10 years. Here, there is some seasonal aspects to this type of uh, virus. So um, I would bet in six months you're going to look back and say, wow, I wish I bought more stuff uh, in the in the February and March of, of 2020. Mike, before I dive into exactly how you buy this dip and what gives you confidence that you're not catching a falling knife, I want to take a, a bigger picture a question about what Larry Kudlow was talking about and the fiscal response. I mean, what is the potential risk here that there is not a sufficient fiscal response and that something that's temporary becomes something much more permanent as companies run out of money and are unable to finance themselves at costs that are uh, fee I mean, I'm looking at American Airlines, borrowing costs going from less than 3% to more than 11% in a matter of days. How do you sort of stave off that risk? Yeah, so so there are two, uh, to me, two big risks, right? One is that you actually have a big earnings contraction here, right? So the EBITDA or cash flow part of the leverage statistic debt to EBITDA really plummets and your leverage goes up and you do get downgrades and you do get funding stresses there. Two is a liquidity risk in the markets that you do get more capitulation and people panic and get out of the markets in big size. We really have not seen that yet, right? We've seen some big redemptions out of ETFs and, and high yield and loans. Uh, investment grade credit have generally, until the last day or so, seen big inflows uh, as their yields are at, at new lows and their prices are up significantly. If there's a lot of forced selling, which we really have not seen yet, uh, then people have to scramble and raise money. And even the highest quality bonds, even the best securities go down in price because you need to sell them to raise money. So, Yelena, Bloomberg Economics, your base case is not a recession. What are the data points that you're looking at that could push you into recession scenario? What are the key things you guys are looking sure. at? Sure. So we recently downgraded uh, growth forecast to just 1% uh, in the first half of the year. In terms of GDP, we were above 2%, I think, uh, just uh, before it all started. So I think we need to uh, look at how growth is evolving. So if we get to a stall speed for year-over-year -year growth in the vicinity of 1.5%, that's where this is a tipping point, basically. So if, if growth slows down below that, uh, that basically passes the point of no return and we um, will go into a recession. So that's why, you know, I think policy has to be more proactive. Look at what the Fed did. They were proactive. They cut rates. So you didn't, you weren't necessarily impressed by what you just heard. From Absolutely Larry not. I think it does require a, a massive policy response, not a targeted one. While they're looking at the data and collecting all of the data that he was talking about, you know, the Fed will have to cut to a zero, zero low bound. And how much ammunition will they have left? So the earlier the, the fiscal response comes, the better it is. So I want to, Mike, get your sense here, because right now you talked about liquidity pressures that we haven't really seen it so far, that we actually saw inflows to investment grade credit 
the high yield bond outflows have been controlled. Trading in the market has withstood it. Today, however, we are starting to see a little bit of a different tone in markets. What are you looking for and how close do you think we are to some sort of liquidity event? Yeah, I, th I think we're still uh, far away from that. I mean, even this morning, we are seeing uh, people looking for, for offerings, looking for bonds to buy, right? I mean, we've instructed our high yield team to really try to be aggressive here and buy our favorite higher quality high yield bonds um, at much wider spreads and much lower prices. And believe me, it's been much more difficult than you would think based on what you see on the screens, right? Bid offer spreads have widened and we still see uh, credit investors recognize that low interest rates are probably going to be here for a long time, right? Right now, the Fed funds futures market are basically pricing in a zero funds rate um, for the next uh, year and a half or so. Uh, and in that environment, again, if there's a dissipation in the spread of the virus and if there's any stabilization in growth in six months from now, uh, that reach for yield will be will be dramatic. And you are seeing people looking to buy on these dips still in the, in the credit markets, at least in the higher quality credits. And, and we're in that camp. So, Yelena, if it is up to the central banks, uh, we've seen the Fed be uh, preemptive. What are you seeing around the world? Is there coordination there? Do you think there needs to be more uh, if the fiscal maybe is not on the front burner right now? I'm not a big believer in that, actually. I, yeah, if it gets to a credit crunch and things like that, yes, central banks will need to coordinate uh, some sort of currency swaps and other tools they, that they engaged during the financial crisis, but in terms of the policy, so we still have some ammunition left in terms of interest rates. So each central bank will do what they need to do for their respective economies, but the, you know, the fiscal policies, again, in each different economy will have to engage. So I don't really see that much in terms of what can be done in terms of coordination rather than just agreeing that the response should be uh, a big one. Mike, I'm struck by the idea that we are looking at bigger companies still having access to credit markets, and we're looking at the prospect of small to medium size not businesses not having the same sort of financing function, whether banks are hoarding cash, whether their uh, inventories go down, they have to hold more capital in order to preserve their capital buffers. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, there's been all this money raised in the private debt markets. Is this going to be an opportunity, or is this going to be another risk? risk factor as we start to see weakness in some of these portfolios. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely uh, for a long time now been concerned and raised some concerns about uh, the huge influx of money into private debt strategies. Uh, I think these are loans to relatively speculative companies, uh, pretty concentrated portfolios of loans in some cases, and some are on a levered basis. And if you do actually see uh, credit cracks in some of those portfolios, uh, I think it could get a, a little bit ugly, right? So I think that is one of the parts of the market uh, that's a little susceptible to, to some weakness here. But again, the policy response, I think, will be targeted to provide liquidity and financing uh, to some of these smaller companies. Even in China, they have these things called coronavirus bonds, where companies that need the capital are fi financing their, their businesses and their capital shortfalls at really low interest rates. But is there a bigger takeaway here, the idea that all of this money was raised for these private credit funds that sort of were supposed to supplant the big banks and their lending function? And this is the time that they should be swooping in and they should be saying, we have money, we have a record amount of dry powder, let's deploy it in order to make these investments. You know, what does it say if they are not or if they are incapable of doing so because they're trying to meet margin calls uh, or, or other sort of liquidity issues? Issues or just frankly defaults in their existing portfolios. 
Yeah, I mean, at least in my dream world, right, the, the Fed will tap the banks on the shoulders and say, hey, guys, this is why we forced you to have so much capital. This is why we forced you to have so much liquidity and your asset quality is pristine. You should actually be supporting the economy now, right? In all past cycles, the banks were piling onto the weakness by being forced sellers because they had all the loans and they had a lot of leverage in the system. They are not in that position. So our long-running view has been the banks will not make things worse and maybe uh, they can actually provide support here. On the flip side, will some of these private credit funds or these big alternative investment funds become systemically risky in a new kind of way? Yeah, remember, so so a lot of these are, are locked up. These are long-term pools that are locked up. That is really important, right? This is not 08. This is not a global margin call about to happen. Uh, even the bank loan market is owned almost largely now by CLOs. This is long-term money that is locked up, right? They are not for sellers. And I think that's really important. I think the structure of the markets are much different than they were in 08. You don't have the inherent leverage in the system that's going to force a lot of uh, selling and, and a, a margin call. So I think that will help lend stability to the system ultimately. Elena, uh, Larry Kudlow, rightfully so, on Bloomberg Television, talking up the strong jobs numbers, 273,000 jobs. Obviously, uh, that is likely to be the last jobs report that we get pre-corona crisis, if you will. What is the, your outlook of Bloomberg Economics for kind of how this could trend over the next several months? So uh, we looked at the, the numbers just uh, based on the financial shock before even all the quarantine measures kick in. So uh, that uh, implies a reduction to the average pace in uh, jobs to something like 150,000 on a trend basis. But uh, when we start seeing all the services uh, spending slowing down, you know, people not going out, people like canceling conferences and so on, that will probably get us to the point to the replacement uh, rate of uh, around 100,000 uh, a month. So that would mean that the unemployment rate will stop falling and potentially could rise, uh, you know, causing a growth recession. Mike, uh, just real quick here to wrap it all up and to tie it together, you said that you were selectively buying on the dip. When do you go in and just say, buy everything? I mean, are we getting close to that point when you talk about capitulation? Yeah, you, you do it when um, you have huge blocks of bonds for sale, names you like, that you own, that are down five or 10 points, and you can actually buy them and execute. And we have not seen that uh, at all to this point, right? And that's when you really go in with, with both feet. And, and maybe that'll happen. Uh, my sense is it, it probably won't. Mike Collins, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you making the trip across the river from the Jersey side over here to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mike's a senior investment officer and senior portfolio manager for PGM uh, Fixed Income and Yelena Shulitieva, a senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, both joining us here again in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Right now in focus, we're looking at markets. They're clawing back some of their earlier losses, so we're not seeing as steep of a decline, actually a pretty significant pairing of the loss still solidly in the red. The S&P down 1.8%, NASDAQ down 1.7%. Uh, Oil, however, very much in focus with crude prices absolutely tumbling down at one point, more than 7% after OPEC plus did not come to an agreement on production cuts. OPEC, remember, agreed to production cuts alone. They went it alone, hoping that Russia would join up and do the same, but Russia did not. Joining us now, Julian Lee, Bloomberg oil strategist in London. Julian, can you just give us a sense of what we learned today? 
I think that we've learned that this is an organization that appears to be in complete disarray. Um, what OPEC said yesterday, um, sort of late afternoon, uh, was that they were proposing uh, a cut of one and a half million barrels a day, of which the OPEC members would take a million and their non-OPEC partners would take uh, the other half million. Um, that cut would, would last throughout the second quarter, so till the end of June. Um, they then sort of hastily got together um, in an informal gathering in the evening um, and issued another press statement later, uh, later in the day to say that, in fact, they were going to propose that this one and a half million barrel a day cut be extended to the end of 2020. Um, none of these discussions involved Russia or the other um, non-OPEC members. The Russian oil minister arrived back in uh, Vienna today for a meeting that was scheduled to start at 10 o'clock. Um, it eventually started at round about 3 p.m. Um, he spent the time before that in, in bilateral meetings, mostly with Saudi Arabia's oil minister. Um, we hear that in the last 15 minutes or so, the meeting uh, has broken up without an agreement. Um, and this is, I mean, in some senses, this is this is even worse than it sounds for for um, OPEC and and its and its allies because um, their current agreement to cut 2.1 million barrels a day uh, expires at the end of this month, um, and so without an agreement, at least on paper, uh, those 2.1 million barrels are going to come back onto the market. So not only are we not going to get a deeper cut, but we may well get oil coming back. So, Julian, the, it just begs the question, how did we get here? There was a time when OPEC or OPEC Plus was pretty cohesive, uh, able to push things through. What's changed here? I think that's a very good question, and I think it's, it's very unclear um, at the moment what has changed. Um, ministers and their delegates are, are being very closed-mouthed at the moment. Um, they're clearly dealing with a situation that, that none of them um, likes being in. I think that, that perhaps what has changed is that there are very different views about how to deal um, with a crisis that is created by a collapse in demand. Um, Saudi Arabia wants to um, make a corresponding cut in supply to try and balance markets, to try and prop up prices a bit. Uh, the sense that we're getting coming from, from Russia, and it, it really is only a sense, um, is that they don't feel that that is perhaps the right response, that what the world needs is a period of lower oil prices, hopefully to stimulate some demand, whether that is um, you know, final end user demand or whether it is countries like China buying more oil to put into stockpiles. Um, and, and there may be a, a real philosophical difference around uh, how you proceed in, in an environment like this. There's also a question about whether OPEC has completely lost control in every way, because ultimately this is not a production issue. This is a demand issue. Uh, and there is going to be a decline in demand that we have seen escalate as travel uh, gets rearranged and as uh, global industries do start to slow in the wake of the coronavirus. I'm just wondering from your perspective, how that sort of factors into the uh, calculus here, the idea that even if they cut production a lot, it may not make a material difference in the short run. Yeah, I, I think that is that is a real concern, and I think that's one of one of the Russian concerns. You know, the the view is that yes, there's going to be a very significant hit uh, to oil demand. We can we can see that happening already. 
Um, but the view perhaps in Moscow is that bad as it may be, it is going to be temporary. You know, this is this is not a, a structural um, change in in demand. This is this is a response to a very specific, um, in this case, virus outbreak. Um, but it is something that will have an end, and and demand will return. Um, and I think this this perhaps is is part of the difference that is emerging. So, Julian, there's a. I've heard some conspiracy theories out there that this might be Russia maybe trying to put uh, additional pressure on the U.S. shale industry, given uh, the precarious financial uh, position of the many of the producers there. Does that have any does that ring true to you at all? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's always tempting to, you know, to, to find um, conspiracies to to build around anybody's um, position. Uh, you know, a, another country that that may have. Uh, desires to to um, cause damage to the U.S. shale sector is Iran, but Iran has been um, wholeheartedly behind output cuts. I mean, it's not going to have to make any because it's producing really only pretty much what it needs for its domestic consumption. Um, but Iran isn't trying to to engineer a, a collapse in oil prices to to hurt U.S. shale. And I personally, I doubt that that's the Russian motivation. So right now I'm looking, uh, just to reset here, uh, crude oil, uh, absolutely tumbling. Crude traded on the NYMEX down to $42.75 a barrel. Uh, that is uh, down by $3.15 just today, giving you a sense. Brent uh, traded in London at $46.82 a barrel. I'm wondering, what is the lower bound here for this demand side crash that we're seeing uh, play out across markets? Well, I think you know we, we've had a number of, of analysts coming out with with all sorts of numbers. Um, you know, I, I've seen numbers uh, suggesting that prices will quite easily fall below thirty dollars a barrel. I've seen you know people saying that we're in for um, a return to to the collapses that we've seen in the past of of you know really low double digits. Um, I, and I think you know very much is going to depend on how individual producers respond to um, what appears to be a failure to reach a deal. Uh, does this mean that Saudi Arabia is, is going to abandon its own output restraint? Are we going to see Saudi Arabia pumping more? Um, that would certainly, I think, push prices down. If we continue to see restraint within OPEC, that, that may um, you know, give a little bit of support to prices. But I, I think that you know the really big issue at the moment is is just how fast um, and and how widespread the collapse in demand is going to be, and that is still an evolving picture as as this virus spreads right. around the world. Julian Lee, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts here. Julian Lee's oil strategist for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Boy, the headlines crossing across my Bloomberg terminal this morning. Just almost too much to take in. You've got the coronavirus latest. You've got the Democratic race uh, really heating up. And you've got better than expected, actually stellar jobs numbers. Fortunately, our next guest can help us parse through all of these things and more. Chris Lou, senior fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, and also a former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama on the phone from Charlottesville. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Let's just start real quickly with the news today. I guess, you know, this is the last piece of economic news we'll get kind of pre-coronavirus in terms of jobs, and it was pretty darn good, wasn't it? It, it was surprisingly good, and I think people, though, need to take it with a grain of salt, obviously. Uh, the This data was collected the week of February 10th, so that's before the first coronavirus death in the United States, before, you know, airlines start cutting back flights and uh, people start canceling conferences. And so this, this may be, I mean, <laughs> all the data is lagging indicators, but this is perhaps, I think, less useful, although it may be an interesting benchmark to see uh, as this coronavirus goes on as to how far we fall from this. Yeah, well, Chris, and this sort of goes to the point of momentum heading into the downturn. And I want to talk about how important that momentum actually is. How much will that buoy any potential ramifications from the spread of the coronavirus and subsequent business shutdowns going forward? So I, I have to say, I was surprised by this number for a couple of reasons. I mean, we know that retail sales have been, um, or a lot of retailers are, are cutting jobs. We know that Boeing, which is a huge part of the economy, continues to struggle. We know that the manufacturing sector is sort of inching itself out of recession. And there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of um, the ability of China to make good on their uh, phase one trade deal. So I was expecting a much lower number. So I, again, I'm, so I, this number is curious to me. Um, but I think I think the issue going forward is coronavirus more like a hurricane, for instance, which case there's kind of a dip in spending, uh, a dip in um, economic productivity, and then all of a sudden you kind of come out of that. In fact, you have rebuilding and people spend and you sort of come back out of it quickly. Or is it kind of a constant drag on the economy? And the question is, is you know, with all of these businesses, you know, starting to uh, issue earning warnings and, you know, conferences and other things like that being cut back, when do employers start uh, laying off workers? And if that happens, then this can kind of go south pretty fast. So, Chris, we, in terms of governmental response, we've had the Fed aggressively move here with that emergency cut. Um, and, you know, the market's discounting even more rate cuts coming up maybe as soon yeah. as uh, the next meeting. Uh, we had Larry Kudlow on Bloomberg Television earlier, and Jonathan Farrow from Bloomberg Television was really pressing him on maybe some fiscal type of stimulus. And it, Mr. Kudlow didn't seem to want to go there. Yeah. What do you think needs to happen from in terms of governmental response? Well, this is the problem. I mean, Fed rates are actually pretty low, historically low right now. Um, we've had, you know, a trillion and a half dollars of stimulus through a tax cut. And so right now we're facing budget deficits of a trillion dollars a year. So a lot of the normal levers you would have as a government policymaker in a time of um, uh, 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 an economic downturn aren't really available to you at this moment. And tr the truth be told, you know, if the issue is in terms of supply chains in China or people not traveling as much, it's hard to say what um, stimulus package could get those things up and running again. Well, let's talk about uh, the concept of zero over zero percent overnight interest rates because that seems to be what's increasingly yeah. being priced into markets. Thirty-year yields tumbling the most since two thousand nine. Meanwhile, we've got another fifty basis point rate cut being priced in to the Fed's March eighteenth yeah. meeting. And I'm just wondering, do you think that this will hurt or help or, or sort of on the margins do anything in response to this? 
Well, when we had the cut the other day, you know, Powell was very clear that, you know, this is not going to make vaccines come out faster. It's not going to unstick supply chains. And I think, if anything, the market viewed that as kind of an act of panic, which I think then sent the market down even more. Um, Look, I I think any kind of stimulus like that is helpful, but I'm not sure it ultimately uh, addresses the problem here, which is there's an incredible amount of uncertainty. Um, The answers will come from NIH and CDC and the World Health Organization. They won't necessarily come from economic policymakers. And I think what you really need more than anything is you need a kind of a, a calm, stable leadership at the top of government that's kind of steering this ship through, you know, increasingly turbulent waters. Chris, uh, let's switch gears a little bit to politics. It was a very, very busy and important week for the Democrats, um, down to two candidates. Now, give us your lay of the land of how you think it might shape up between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? Uh, yes, Elizabeth Warren, sorry. Um, well, with, you know, look, I think... Uh, she did an interesting interview last night, Senator Warren, where um, she she didn't. I'm sorry, uh, uh, say, Senator Biden uh, and uh, Senator that's Sanders. That's not actually uh, Vice President Biden. Um, I don't think um, this race is over anytime soon. I think we've got a couple important states coming down the road. Uh, we've got Michigan next Tuesday, and then some really kind of key battleground states of uh, Arizona. Florida, uh, I think, on March 10th. And so, and obviously the way that Democrats allocate uh, delegates is on a, on a kind of a threshold basis. So you can continue to rack up uh, delegates all through this process. And we obviously have another big uh, presidential debate coming up in about nine days. And so there's a lot of dynamics. And I think what's been sort of head spinning for all of us that have been politics a long time is how quickly the narrative has changed over the last couple of weeks. And so I would not be surprised if it changes again, uh, you know, multiple times before we next talk. Uh, But I think this race will go, you know, well into March and potentially into April if Senator Sanders is able to mount some kind of comeback. Chris, uh, let's bring both what's going on in markets as well as politics together, and it really is you are the perfect person to do so, given the fact that you've spent decades in public service, including seven years in the Obama administration. What should the response be by the Democratic candidates to the escalating coronavirus to show that they can, you know, take charge and, and, and pose some sort of alternative? Well, I think this really plays right into the vice president's hands. I mean, you know, he, he's trying to project normalcy, stability, competence. You know, and again, whatever you think about uh, his policies, whatever you think about his, you know, debating style, um, this is a person who's been in Washington a long time. Uh, one of his first key um, assignments under President Obama was managing the $800 billion stimulus back in 2009, and his charge was to get the money out the door as fast as possible, um, to look for shovel-ready projects. And so he, he knows how to manage a crisis. Um, he knows how to uh, pull the different levers of government programs uh, to get an economy back up and running. So um, I think th- this, I think, is perfect for him uh, in this moment to stand as a contrast to, I think, you know, what even some of uh, the president's supporter would say has been uh, a less than clear message coming out of the White House these days. Chris Liu, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Uh, really important to have his perspective, given his experience, his decades in public service, understanding sort of the nexus of the economy and the private sector, as well as governmental response at this day, where we see markets unclear of how to price uh, the coronavirus risk other than simply buy bonds.
Well, as the coronavirus continues to spread globally, strategists, economists, and investors trying to gauge out what the economic impact will be ultimately. Uh, the good folks at Eurasia Group have some thoughts there. Robert Kahn, Director, Global Strategy and Global Macro at the Eurasia Group based in New York City, joins us. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. I know you folks at Eurasia Group have done some work kind of trying to game out some scenarios here about how the uh, economic impact could play out. What are some of the thoughts, what are some of the takeaways from your analysis? Well, Paul, thanks for having me on the program. And, yeah, we've spent a, fair, a lot of time trying to provide more clarity on the political and the economic dynamics across various scenarios. Uh, we don't pretend to have great insight into the uh, epidemiology. We leave that to the medical professionals. But we did take three alternative paths for the virus and then looked at the consequences of that. In the three paths, one is a, what we call a benign scenario, maybe mislabeled, maybe just an optimistic one, which is where the virus peaks uh, within about six weeks, and that's based on a, a view that China and the other frontline states are able to contain it, and uh, there's more, a very active strategy across the industrial world. We then also look at two more serious scenarios. One is where the peak in the, in the propagation of the virus doesn't come to the middle of the year, to something like July. And then a third uh, pandemic scenario in which the virus really continues to spread and propagate aggressively through the end of the year. What we find is that the political and economic dynamics are much more adverse in those second two scenarios, the July scenario and the end year scenario. And in a way, it's kind of intuitive that, I, that countries are, uh, the politics in a lot of uh, the industrial world are still kind of focusing with, on the day-to-day. There is a political resiliency to deal with this for a while. Uh, firms can deal with supply chain disruptions for a period of time. But if this extends beyond the middle of the year, we, get to see, we see a lot more fracturing of the politics. We see a lot more pressure on supply chains, particularly in, in major companies and in the frontline sort of uh, industries that are being affected. And we begin to worry a lot more about financial stress. And that's going to, of course, create some really big challenges for uh, our leaders in terms of who to bail and who to fail. You know, public policy will face some very tough choices in those scenarios. And so that's the direction in which we looked at in these scenarios. So, Robert, what kind of probabilities if you did at all, did you assign to these three scenarios? Are they fairly equal weighted or is one more likely than the other at this point? We tried to avoid putting specific uh, probabilities on it because uh, you know, at the beginning, we, we, there's so many different views out in the scientific community and so much uncertainty now, not just about the spread of the disease, but also the lethality of it. What I do stress to, uh, to uh, our clients, though, is that you know, if you, if you go back a few weeks, we were really very much focused on a benign scenario. We, it was easy to look at what happened in SARS and look at some of the other disease threats where the markets bounced back very quickly after the initial shock and to be hopeful for that. And I think now a, a lot of the people we, I talk to really are starting to focus, particularly on that middle scenario, that serious scenario in which the disease spreads aggressively through the, until the middle of the year and are paying more attention to that. And I think what I would argue is that's not fully priced into our markets or to our political discussions. And so we are folk, we're trying to encourage people to pay more attention to that, but I am avoiding trying to put a probability on it because I would probably get that wrong. 
Yeah, interesting, Robert. We had uh, uh, Larry Kudlow, the director of the National Economic Council, on Bloomberg Television this morning with uh, our own Jonathan Farrow. And Jonathan was really pressing him on uh, what the government is actually doing. I mean, we've seen the Fed you know, come to the rescue with a what we call an emergency uh, rate cut earlier this week. But uh, some people are concerned that maybe the U.S. government is not moving fast enough, maybe with some fiscal stimulus uh, along those lines. What, is, what are your views there about kind of what the U.S. government has done to date? Well, first of all, I listened to that interview, and Jonathan did a spectacular job on it because he raised exactly the right issues. A Fed rate cut, I think, was perfectly appropriate to provide some underpinning to demand. But particularly in the serious and severe scenarios, you have to be focused on the supply-side dislocations. And so then you have to ask yourself, you know, what is it we really need to be debating now and preparing now? It goes beyond... It goes beyond helping households who can't get to work and helping small and medium firms. Those are really important steps, but we have to be debating what do we do on tariffs because lightning tariffs does, in fact, uh, alleviate the supply chain pressures and allows firms to go elsewhere and get the critical supplies they're not able to get from their main suppliers. Uh, We have to address issues like we did in 2008 of whether or not we're going to provide facilities to whole industries particularly including large firms. And I understand the politics are tough there, but we need to be confronting those kind of issues. And while the Fed has some capacity to do that, and and I'm sure is thinking about that, if we get into the extended scenarios, there are solvency questions. It's not just the liquidity, which is what the Fed is supposed to deal with. It really then becomes a fiscal issue as well. And so those were the right questions to put to to Larry. Um, He obviously couldn't go too far, but I wished he had been a little more... uh, forthcoming on on the direction of travel for this administration. So, Robert, you know, in the work that you and your team did on this scenario analysis, what have we learned, you know, from China, how this has played out in China in terms of timing? I guess we're seven or eight weeks into this playing out in China. What have we learned there? Well, one big thing we learned is that there's a fascinating and important trade-off between very tough containment and economic rejuvenation. And as, as you, I'm sure you know, the scientists do debate whether, you know, if you have a problem in the city, should you just shut down the whole city, or do you focus on identifying the cases and tracing the contacts and then treating those people in a more limited fashion? The Chinese obviously had the, the political will and the capacity to, to shut down a whole province. They are now finding it is more difficult to reanimate uh economic activity at the end of that and get people back to work and i think that type of tension that's certainly one of the lessons we're learning the other thing i think we're seeing is this issue of you know protracted scarring of balance sheets and this is a lesson i think we also learned in 2008 that when you have these deep financial uh and economic crises however they come and admittedly 2008 it was a different style of crisis than we're facing now but i think there's a common point here that when you have that, it leaves scars on the balance sheets of households, on the balance sheets of corporations, and it does take a long time to recover. And so the longer this right. goes on, the, the less likely it is you can get a V, uh, and it's going to be a more like some other letter of the alphabet. I think even the Chinese now, and, and we even wrote about it today to clients, uh, the Chinese are understanding that a V-shaped recovery yep. may not be in the cards. Hey, Robert Kahn, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Robert Kahn is the Director of Global Strategy and Global Macro for Eurasia Group, out with a really interesting report trying to game out uh, some scenarios for how this uh, coronavirus may impact the economies globally. Uh, Markets, again, selling off here. Equity markets off over 2%. Coming up... uh, 
power, balance of power, David Weston, coming up in just moments. He will drive the conversation forward. Risk off day. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.